recently, we've been sharing about the restraining power of the Holy Spirit to hold lawlessness in check. The New Testament tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2.7 that the Antichrist can't be revealed until something called the restrainer is removed. In light of all this today, let's talk about the restraining power of vision. That is the ability to think about or plan for the future with imagination or wisdom. Proverbs 29:18 says, where there's no vision, the people perish. But I prefer more modern versions where there's no vision, the people cast off restraints. In other words, when people don't accept divine guidance, they run wild. But the proverb adds, whoever obeys the law is joyful. This is a powerful truth that without godly vision, people are led to the slaughter by lawlessness and destruction. The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Darg. Proverbs 29:18 in the Jewish Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible says, where there's no vision, the people cast off restraint, but he that keeps the law, happy is he. Also, Hosea 4:6 declares, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Divine vision is essential to human salvation and happiness. Vision is associated with spiritual power to deliver people from the bondage, misery of guilt and sin. Proverbs 29.2 also tells us that when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is reproach to any people. Well, America, Britain, and the Commonwealth nations have been known as Christian nations, enviable free societies of liberty, but increasingly due to factors such as the threat of a pandemic and lawless unchurched people casting off restraints, in our lifetime, these Western governments are increasingly becoming nanny states, attempting to micromanage our lives. But if people are changed on the inside by the Holy Spirit to obey God, then they can govern themselves. Big government just won't be necessary. And as the Ten Commandments have been taken out of our schools, it's no coincidence that the commandments are replaced by metal detectors and surveillance cameras, condoms and graphic sex education, abortion clinics and Marxism. When innocent lives are murdered in the womb and sexual predators are allowed to have a field day, our land becomes defiled with blood. Cycles of violence demand a nanny state with bigger and bigger governments. And as Jesus predicted for the end times, societies will begin to degenerate, as in the days of Noah, when violence swept the earth. One of the great tragedies of our time has been a lack of biblical education for several decades so that secularism has replaced biblical principles. 
And Abraham Lincoln said, the philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation becomes the philosophy of government in the next generation. The youth desperately need to know this word of God or all restraint will be cast off. I'm so happy that my Israeli friend Jonathan Feldstein is promoting his website, Verses for Zion, to help young Christians learn more about God, His Word, His people, and how they can connect to the Holy Land. Verses for Zion is also a special opportunity to connect Jews and Christians by providing lists of Bible verses for children to memorize how important Bible memorization is. Without a generation that knows this word of God, the people perish and cast off restraint. In the Hebrew Bible, in the days of the prophet Samuel, there was no open vision because a famine of the word of God covered the land. However, God mercifully raised up the prophet Samuel and gave him visions, enabling Samuel's influence to restrain the ungodliness of his age. Our great need in this hour is for more men and women of vision as social reformers and preachers, because where there's no moral vision, knowledge of truth is seriously eroded. In the New Testament, as a prisoner, the Apostle Paul made his defense before King Agrippa. Paul related how he was radically changed by heavenly vision and became a new person on the road to Damascus. Jesus dramatically called him and commissioned him as an apostle. In Acts chapter 26, Paul explained, About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice say to me in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's so hard for you to kick against the pricks. Who are you, Lord? Paul asked, and he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen from me and what I will show you in the future. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles, and I am sending you to them to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, to receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Well, Paul's heavenly vision is a summary of what Jesus desires for every man, woman, and child. He wants to forgive our sins and to open our eyes to our miserable condition as sinners. He's willing to help us to turn from the darkness of our sin nature and the meaninglessness of our routine lives to God's blessed presence in our lives. When we welcome the Lord, he saves us from the tyranny of Satan and empowers us to live holy, purposeful, and victorious lives. That's God's heavenly vision, his plan of salvation for all mankind. And what a glorious vision. But in our generation, Many of the churches have become apostate and disobedient to the heavenly vision. Whenever the heavenly vision is obeyed, untold blessings influence into the lives of others throughout the world. Well, we just can't take on every battle, but let's focus at least on the heavenly vision. 
with the proliferation of social media and the world becoming a global village, each one of us is bombarded on a daily basis with many petitions and appeals, people asking us to support various causes. And while many causes may be good and quite legitimate, we as individuals are not obligated to fight every battle. More than ever, spirit-led decisions are necessary to navigate living in this minefield of a world. And one of the most liberating steps we can take in life is to come to the conclusion that not every battle is ours. Let's allow the Lord to lead us to select which battles we're going to get involved in. Let's save our strength for the heavenly vision. The great missionary preacher A.B. Simpson was observed praying in his study early in the morning with a globe on his desk. He would give the globe a gentle spin and stop the globe and then pray for a country wherever his finger pointed. Then A.B. Simpson reached out, put both of his arms around the globe, hugged the whole world to himself, and prayed for the whole world. And is that not the heart of God, the essence of John 3, 16? that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him, Jesus, will not perish, but will have eternal life. That's the vision of God. And that must be our heart to be obedient to God's heavenly vision. Paul's whole life was one long act of obedience. It was an adventure of sharing the good news of the Messiah with his Jewish people, as well as with the Gentile nations. The account of Paul's encounter with the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus is recorded, in fact, three times in the Acts of the Apostles, in chapters 9, 22, and 26. At midday, the Lord's presence was brighter than the sun. And you know the sun in the Middle East is very hot and bright. Paul was knocked off of his horse and it was a public event in front of witnesses who were traveling with him, and it verified the resurrection of the Messiah. The vision of God and God's call are not temporary passing phenomenon in the life of a believer. It stayed with Paul his whole life. For example, in Philippians chapter 3, he shared how his encounter with the risen Lord influenced his whole life and ministry. The vision remained with him, guiding him, sustaining him, strengthening him. The vision was certainly a permanent dynamic force in Paul's life. He had been journeying to Damascus to persecute the believers. Then came the shattering experience on the way. Jesus confronted him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Well, that was an earthquake in Saul's life that shook him to the ground and to his very core. His theological beliefs were shaken. There was another way he learned, faith in Jesus. And so he became Paul, who was led to comprehend that the cross of Jesus is the hinge of history, the most important sacred ground where the blood atonement, the salvation of both Jew and Gentile, was staged. Later, Paul could write that there was neither Jew nor Gentile, neither male nor female in Messiah. On his cross, Jesus had broken down the middle wall of partition between peoples and nations. Jesus' parable of the hidden treasure in a field and the parable of the pearl of great price were both exemplified in Paul's life. 
just as a merchant sold everything to buy the field. And the pearl, Paul sacrificed everything for the gospel. Once he had encountered the risen Lord, he had only one desire, and that was to know and possess Messiah. So Paul wrote in Philippians 3, 7, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Messiah, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. All I care, Paul said, is to know Messiah. After the Damascus Road experience, for three days Paul had remained blind. For three days he neither ate nor drank. They led him by the hand into Damascus, and there the divine will and purpose concerning his commissioning were further unfolded to him by the prophetic words of the disciple Ananias. Paul wasn't promised titles nor riches, only he was told how much he would suffer for Jesus, but that he would have the privilege and honor to share the glorious gospel. Suddenly, an entirely new direction and focus overtook his life and ministry. No longer a persecutor of the church, now Paul's heavenly vision became his permanent vocation. The voice of the Lord directed Paul to rise to his feet and to bear witness to the Messiah amongst all people, both Jew and Gentile alike. He was commissioned to carry the life-giving gospel throughout the known world. In obedience to that vision, Paul journeyed throughout the world, giving away the word of God in synagogues, markets, ships, homes, prisons, and amphitheaters, calling all people to the light and life in Messiah. And after 27 years of faithful missionary ministry, Paul could testify before King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. The conversion of Saul into the Apostle Paul is one of the great proofs of the resurrection of Messiah. And as Isaiah 55 declares, the Lord God has opened my ears and I have not been rebellious, nor have I turned back. When the great persecutor of the church met the risen Jesus, he was turned from darkness to light and he received a worldwide mission, divinely sent and divinely cared for. How we need this heavenly vision in our world right now and how we need obedient servants of the Lord who are like Paul, fearless, compelled to publish and proclaim the everlasting gospel everywhere. Before his divine encounter, Paul didn't have much vision for the rest of the world outside of Judaism, but there was a world of need. Paul was oblivious to that need, but now the risen Lord commanded him, get up and go to the Gentiles and tell them about the Savior. And what the Lord said to Saul, Paul, is what he says to every believer in the Great Commission. Go to open people's eyes. Sinners without the Savior are like blind people. Go to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. Satan only kills, steals, and destroys, but Jesus' salvation puts people under new management, delivering us from the tyranny of Satan and the powers of darkness. Jesus said, tell people they can receive forgiveness of sins. An awful, shameful past can be forgiven and washed clean by Jesus, no matter what. And also the good news of the heavenly vision is that forgiven people 
can receive an inheritance. And how is that? By becoming adopted children of God, heirs of salvation and the riches of God. That's what can happen when we share the gospel with this world that's lost in its sin. So let's understand afresh how important are heavenly visions. Such a vision sets your agenda for life. For example, I was a newspaper writer and editor, then a broadcaster, but God reset my life's agenda through a heavenly vision. In the course of Paul's life from the Damascus Road until his death, some 35 years later, was determined by the heavenly vision directed by God. And when Paul was a prisoner many years later, he described his vision in his defense before King Agrippa. And in Acts 26, 24, Agrippa obviously was unnerved and said sarcastically that Paul was mad. He was crazy. But that didn't throw Paul off beam. He maintained his dignity and his sermon. People in the world, unsaved persons who have no vision, will always have a hard time understanding and coming to grips with people of vision. They think we're crazy. They think we're hearing voices and so forth. And of course, some people really are crazy, especially in the end times. So our discernment must always be on high alert. And the only way we can truly discern a legitimate vision is to know this word in and out. Meanwhile, we must be obedient to the gospel vision. We must keep trying to fulfill it in this generation. We'll be hated, despised, misunderstood, but we must not be silent. In his book, Our Guilty Silence, author John Stott spoke straight to the issues for effective evangelism. And sadly, he said, either we have no compelling incentive to try to speak or we don't know what to say. But someone with a godly vision knows what to say. Repent, return to God, and do acts worthy of the gospel. When Paul was arrested by Jesus on the way to Damascus, he didn't later say, I was obedient to the heavenly vision, but no, he more modestly said, I was not disobedient to it. May that also be our testimony. We must have the same vision to tell people to repent and to return to God. God gave me a powerful vision and a dream to preach the gospel and to stand with the nation of Israel when all the world turns against Israel before the second coming of Jesus. God often speaks to each of us by name, telling us of our life's mission. He often speaks to us by dreams or visions as he did to Abraham and the apostles, Paul and Peter, and so many in the Bible. He could address us by an audible voice as he did to Samuel, who responded with, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Or he could send a special messenger to us, as he did to the kings Ahab, David, and Hezekiah. Or an angelic messenger can communicate with us, as in the cases of the prophet Daniel, the parents of Samson, the Virgin Mary, and Joseph. He could call us to his service by an internal voice, as he did so often with the prophets, or he could speak to us in his Shekinah glory, as he did to Isaiah, to Saul on the Damascus Road, or to John on the island of Patmos. However, God most often chooses to speak to us by his holy word through the pages of this Bible. 
There are principles in this book that give us guidance on every situation involving the will of God. Also, the voice of conscience urges us to duty and conscience condemns wrong actions. And when we have done right, our conscience will express approval. And then there's the great form of guidance called divine providence. When God orders our lives and intervenes in our lives, as clearly as God intervened in the life of Saul on the Damascus road. We may also just as likely receive vision by hearing a gospel preacher or even the providential voice of a stranger, such as the case when the Ethiopian eunuch met Philip the evangelist in Acts chapter 8 on the desert road going down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so, on an airplane, on a train, on a ship, in some remote place, the feet of the stranger have often been guided to speak to us about truths and the way of salvation. Such are the infinite influences of the Holy Spirit, who in so many ways and means raised up people and called a man like William Wilberforce to end the evils of slavery, who gave vision, for example, to Amy Carmichael to rescue Indian girls from forced prostitution, and so many believers throughout the history of the church were raised up and they were not disobedient to the heavenly vision. And perhaps the most beloved devotional of all times, my utmost for his highest, Oswald Chambers wrote, if we lose the heavenly vision God has given us, we alone are responsible, not God. We lose the vision because of our own lack of spiritual growth. If we don't apply our beliefs about God to the issues of everyday life, the vision God has given us will never be fulfilled. And the only way to be obedient to the heavenly vision is to give our utmost for His highest, our best for His glory. This can be accomplished only when we make a determination to continually remember God's vision. As Habakkuk 2.3 admonishes us, Though it tarries, wait for it. Wait for the vision. We can't bring the Lord's vision that He gives us to fulfillment through our own efforts, but we must live under its inspiration until it fulfills itself with God's help. Waiting for a vision that tarries, that seems to be delayed, is the true test of our faithfulness to God. And gladly, one of the signposts that we're being obedient to the heavenly vision is God's favor upon our lives. The favor of God is what I call tangible evidence that we have the approval of the Lord. This favor is expressed in infinite ways, all recognizable to the obedient servant of the Lord. As Acts 13.22 says about David, he was a man about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart and he will do everything I want him to do. What a statement for God to say that we will do everything that God wants us to do. Let's be like David, as God said, a man after his own heart. What am I after? What are you after? Are we pursuing God's heart and God's vision for the lost? Are we supporting what God says is important in these last days? Do we, for example, pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Do we understand that God at this time favors the return of his people to the Holy Land? Are we after God's heart or are we going to be politically correct? 
Now, Jesus was asked a very vital question in John 6, 28. What must we do to be doing the works of God? What a question. Jesus replied that the obedient had one great work to do, out of which all other good works would follow. And he said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one whom he has sent himself. To believe on him, to make a full surrender to the Lord is in itself the great work of God because faith is the highest work. By faith, we surrender to God and his heavenly vision. And what is God's vision for us as revealed in this book? To repent, to return to God, and then to perform deeds, exploits that demonstrate our repentance. The Lord Jesus came to me when I was a very sick child and healed me. And in the vision, Jesus, Yeshua is his Hebrew name, was dressed as the King of the Jews. This heavenly vision helped to set the course of my entire life to believe on him who was sent by God. And what about you, my friend? How would you describe your encounter with the risen Lord Jesus? Have you ever had one? Of course, most of us won't have an encounter as dramatic as St. Paul's. But I want to encourage you that every time you hear or read the gospel, you can directly encounter the Lord. Every time spirit-led worship service is attended or, or you watch one on the internet, it's a way to encounter the Lord. Even in the persons we meet and in anointed artwork and anointed music, we can encounter the Lord. The Lord's ways are past finding out. Proverbs 16, 3 and 9 admonishes us to commit our way to the Lord and our plans will succeed. But we can make our plans however the Lord determines our steps. Amen. I'm glad about that. Today, Bible believers have succeeded to the office of the Jewish prophet. But if the supply of godly preachers would ever stop, a nation will be in big trouble. We have recently witnessed some of the weakest, spineless men put into places of hierarchy in the traditional churches. Let's pray for the Lord to remove wicked leadership in both government and religious office and raise up fearless believers like the Apostle Paul to preach the Word of God as the only foundation for all private and public blessings and prosperity. Heavenly Father, we just ask you in the name of Jesus that all willful workers of wickedness be removed from positions of power, prominence, and prestige. Open the eyes of those who are being deceived and place people who stand for righteousness in the high areas of government and influence. We realize that this can only ultimately be achieved, of course, when Jesus returns to rule the world with perfect righteousness and a perfect government from Jerusalem. But as this is our watch, we are going to do our part in prayer now to restrain wickedness as much as possible until Jesus returns. Amen. And in the meantime, I want to draw your attention to our website, exploits.tv, which reports on current events relating to the church and the nation of Israel. And at our website, and also at our Jerusalem Channel YouTube site, there's a library of helpful videos available 24-7. And we invite you also to sign up for our free electronic magazine, Exploits. Daniel 11.32 declares that the people who know their God will be strong, not weak, and will carry out exploits, meaning we're going to accomplish the works of the Lord 
in the remaining time before the Lord's imminent return. Now, if you have any questions about our ministry, you can stay in touch on your phones or tablets through our free Jerusalem Channel mobile app, or you can contact me on the social media. Until next time, I'll always be contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm Christine Dark. Shalom and Maranatha.